We've been working our way through uh, the creed since October, the Apostles' Creed, and uh, uh, this is some key beliefs summarised from the very earliest days of the New Testament church. And we've got a couple of topics to go. Um, today we're going to do that last line. Uh, so I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And um, I just wanted to, um, uh, when, when I was thinking about this talk, one of the things that came to mind was just a phrase right near the end of Ecclesiastes, which is the advice of a dad to his son. And he says this, he says, the words of the wise are like goads. Their sayings are like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. So if you think about what that's like. It's a bit like this. It's kind of like really, 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 really. We really. <laughs> Jeopardy. We See, the creed was a bit like that, right? There's, there can be some aspects of faith that are about emphasis and expression, but there are some core truths that are like firmly embedded nails, things that we're going to hold on to tightly that are, that, that, and are rock solid about. And um, actually, the, the creed represents, uh, represents some of those things that have been uh, stood the test of time right through church history. And the context for this was that there were some pretty damaging ideas around at the time this was written. So one of them was nihilism. It's this idea, you know what, this world is all there is, so nothing matters. You know, and, and you can you can see that even in Ecclesiastes, you know, it talks about all share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the same destiny affects them all. For the living know that they'll die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. And the point is like, what's the point? Why try? Because actually, you're just heading to, towards death. So nihilism is that sense of, yeah, well, it doesn't really matter. Let's just, you know, do our own thing. If it feels good, do it. Why bother? And, uh, and yet we know, like Paul said, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're of all people to be most pitied. Eternity really matters. Um, the second idea that um, was around at the time was this notion of dualism. Sort of, you know, never mind the physical world, what's going on. It's about our soul, that it connects to some deeper, higher, unseen spiritual realm. And it was a Greek idea that was first espoused by a guy called Plato. This idea that there were these separate compartments and you can have your sacred stuff over here. Just be fine on Sunday, do all your thing, whatever. Just live, live the rest of the life the way you want. You know, kind of no business of, you know, why, why bring morality into politics or life or sexuality or all those kind of things. But, but, but you know, there's this sacred space that we can, we can, we can be in. And sacred over here, uh, secular over there. But, you know, God so loved the world. God saw all that he created, that physical world, and said, it's good. We know the word became flesh. Jesus became a physical man. There are no compartments. But these ideas were damaging and they were prevalent in the culture. Sound a bit familiar? Yeah. So we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. The future is eternal and it is physical and it is certain. How could we be so sure? Well, it's anchored in a historical event. The best way to understand this is to look to the one who's gone ahead of us. So we're going to look a bit at our future resurrection through the lens of Jesus' resurrection. Now, last week, we let the scripture about the resurrection really just we let it wash over us. We let it move us to love God with all of our heart and soul as we thought about Jesus rising from the dead. Well, this week, we're going to focus on the same truth, to love God with all of our mind and all of our strength. So the... Um, what we're going to get to is what was going on and why is it, why is it important? 
So, in Acts, first, uh, Peter stood up and he was, uh, he was explaining at the day of Pentecost, he explained what David had prophesied, that after he'd been put to death on the cross, God raised Jesus from the dead. He said this, God has raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses of the fact. It is indeed the fact, the fact of Christianity. And that Peter, that message Peter stood and preached is amazing, okay? In one sense, he didn't so much argue rationally for the resurrection as announce it. But there are three things we should probably note. First of all, it was falsifiable. You get lots of weird conspiracy theories and stuff going around, and one of the central things is they kind of say something that it's really, really hard to suss out whether it's true or not. You know, they make some claim about something happening behind closed doors many miles away, and you, you can't really know. And that's great, they love the uncertainty. But this was different, right? Peter is there, incredibly close in the location and time to events that he was talking about. He said to them, Jesus was accredited to you by miracles as you yourselves know. They were there in a small city of probably about 80,000 people, maybe just, after, just over a month after, after Jesus' death. And, you know, it would be the equivalent of, you know, you might have to say, you know, if you've forgotten something and maybe live over in Western Springs, you could never ever get it, right? It wouldn't be hard from here. It's not too far. Well, do you know what? Wherever Jesus' body was in Jerusalem, it was closer than that to where we are now. So the amazing thing is like, you know, actually if, if, if he's kind of saying, you know, Jesus has risen from the dead, right? You know, well, how hard would it have been for the, for those watching to say, look guys, can you just go and, you know, c come back, come back in best part of an hour. You know, you can, you can you know, stick that body on a cart and just, you can come and show, show everybody, look, it's perfectly obvious. Here's a corpse, he's dead. It was totally falsifiable. Secondly, there was extensive eyewitness evidence. There were two women at the tomb. There was Mary Magdalene when Jesus appeared to her in the garden. There were the 12 disciples in Jerusalem in the evening, indoors one time. Then in Galilee in the morning, outdoors another time. Then over a period of several weeks. And then to more than 500 people together. Extensive eyewitness. This is um, quite a compelling court case. But... Um, you can never build a case on circumstantial evidence alone, but eyewitness and circumstances, it starts to build up. So think about the circumstantial evidence. Firstly, the medical detail that you read in the Gospels. When the spear went into Jesus' side, blood and water flowed. That's the separation of platelets and plasma from, from, uh, from the, the, the blood. That happens to dead bodies. It's what happens. It verifies he genuinely was dead. He wasn't kind of just, you know, you can have some wacky theory about he fainted and then he got better. Well, not really. You know, soldiers knew. They knew how to test, how, you know, if someone was dead or not. And uh, they did this all the time. Secondly, as we've, as we've seen, both on that day but, but thereafter, the authorities couldn't produce a body. That was the easiest way to shut down this idea that this man Jesus had been raised from the dead. Thirdly, that the bribe that they, they gave to the guards to say the disciples had taken the body wasn't believed. And, and, and I wonder why not. Maybe it was, fourthly, the overnight change in the disciples from this fearful, scattered group to complete boldness. And that makes any idea that they hid the body completely incredible, of course, because who would really stand up, confront ruling powers and be willing to die for a hoax that you actually perpetrated and knew was false. And then we could look maybe beyond that at the explosive growth of the church from a scattered, defeated group to every town and city in the known world within a couple of generations. Beyond all of this, of course, 
we could talk about the transformed lives of men and women across 2,000 years. Many of us can testify in this room. We have a living saviour who has quite literally changed our hearts and our lives. So um, it's pretty compelling. And there's a decision to make about that. But, you know, I guess there's a bit of a question here, which is, uh, so what? Why does it matter? Well, we're not going to be able to go through in depth 10 reasons today. We'll be here till the evening. Um, but we'll, we'll probably touch on most of them and we'll look at a couple in a bit more depth. So what was going on? Well, the first thing was this. The meaning of the cross has been definitively interpreted for us. What do I mean by that? Well, first off, Jesus' work has been accepted. Jesus on the cross said, it's finished. Now, you could think, well, did that just mean I've had it? It's, it my, my mission's ended. Or, as we always preach, does it mean it's actually finished? I've paid the price for sin. Even if he had, how would we know the far, what the Father felt about that? Well, we know because the resurrection shows us exactly what the Father felt about what Jesus did on the cross. It's kind of like when you've done your job so well, you get a promotion. You know, God saw what Jesus had done, his sacrifice for sin on the cross, and he said yes. The second thing it did is his sinless life was validated. And we know the scripture, the wages of sin is death. But was Jesus really dying an innocent man? Or did he have a good image, but maybe private failings like a lot of people? Well, if he'd been dying for his own sins, he wouldn't have been raised. So we know Jesus' sinless life was validated. And thirdly, his identity was authenticated. Now, there are plenty of people at the cross who were sneering that God had abandoned him, mocking his claims. Oh, he's cursed. At this point, I need to introduce you to my two friends. Okay. Um, so, uh, let's see. Now, now this here is Olivia on the uh, left. And uh, Olivia, as you can see, is a gravity enthusiast. Okay. Say hi, Olivia. Hi. Okay. This here, though, is Oscar. And he is... Oscar the Orange, he is a gravity sceptic, okay? And the um, thing is, they have lots of conversations together. What do you think happens when you get to the end of a table? Well, Oscar says, well, I just think you keep rolling forward because I don't believe in gravity. Yeah. And uh, Livy says, ah, I, th I, think, I think I do believe in gravity. I think you probably, you know, third down. And um, their discussion is probably one of fairly subjective opinion, right? Until one day... There's a big thud. Now, the question for Oscar is not, what is your opinion? What is your truth, Oscar, about gravity? The question is, did that just happen? That was an objective thing. The fact of, a, the fact of Olivia's fall off the table means there is no more room for opinion. You've got to make your mind up on the basis of the facts that are before you. Tim Keller said this, he said, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why bother about anything he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Paul put it like this in Romans, he said, he was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. He said he would lay down his life and take it up again after three days. Three times he predicted it. 
Three times he said he'd rise again on the third day. The supernatural power of the Father God showed dramatically and publicly that what that centurion who saw how he died and gasped, surely this was the Son of God. He's right. He is who he says he is. And in which case, everything else he says matters. Everything else Jesus says matters because he's been raised from the dead. It's not bad, is it? That's the first thing. The second thing is this. I want to mention to you this uh, point, the Deuteronomy principle. You can read this in Deuteronomy 30. It's right through the Old Testament. Uh, this is Moses talking to people of Israel. He says, I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life that your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice. Hold fast to him for the Lord is your life. So we can see that, that actually this is the way it is. This is a way that... Um, the universe, if you like, it's written into the DNA of how everything has been made to work. And it was, you know, if, if you walk in obedience, there is life and blessing. There's a natural flow. If you walk in disobedience, there is death and curse. And that was what the law coded, made really clear. So, fair enough. The challenge, of course, for us is that we kind of went for option B, mostly. I mean, you know, we had some good intentions a fair bit of the time, but actually we didn't really always do the right thing. And so having uh, walked in disobedience to God and not really lived his perfect standards, there is a natural flow on for us. You can see it. It's where the arrow keeps going to, towards death and curse. Um, and then Jesus comes along. And what does he do? Well, he doesn't make our kind of choices. He's sinless and he makes he lives a perfect life. He doesn't do anything wrong. Three times Pilate said, I can find nothing wrong with this man. Can't find anything wrong with him. Completely innocent, massive miscarriage of justice. He lived a completely obedient life. So in the natural thing, the Deuteronomy principle would say, where was he headed? What was what had he what had his life uh, earned for him? Well, you know, we, just as we heard, you know, Sin pays as its wage, death. Well, you know, obedience. There's a natural flow for life and blessing. But what happened, of course, was that Jesus went and kind of stood in our place, took our punishment, took the thing that was headed for, headed for us when he died on the cross. And, um, you know, some people uh, would, would say, you know, that was, so that was an amazing thing, we have to say that. And, um, it's almost like, well, he's cancelled that penalty of sin. And he had. He absolutely did. Um, but it's more than that because if we just stopped with the cross, Jesus would have paid for our sins. So we could say, oh, yeah, you know, great. The penalty for sin is is paid. but And you might think justification. Some people used to use the phrase, justification is just as if I've never sinned, right? That's a great way of, you might think that's a great, it's a nice, nice little sentence, isn't it? Um, it's not actually quite right, okay? Um, because just as if I've never sinned is like a, a clean slate. I mean, that sounds very attractive, right? But have we not all lived through New Year's resolutions? How many years have you made New Year's resolutions? How good are we when we get a clean slate, actually? How good are we, uh, uh, you know, 
we kind of mess it up over and over and over again. So it's not great to be just as if I never sinned because I'd just be the same as Adam was. I'd just muck it up. So Jesus claims the full reward of life and blessing for his obedience. And um, so be, it's not just as if I never sinned. It's just as if I'd done everything right and I'd been on that top line and, and, I, and I, we inherit this life and blessing. We, we've, we are kind of imputed with the full status as if we'd done everything right our whole lives up to now and from now. And that's what being in Christ means. So I have here a, um, a little card, which I nicked out of, uh, out of our cupboard. Hold on. See the card? It's, it's a nice little greetings card. It's okay, right? The thing is, um, I'm going to put the card in the envelope. So now the card's in the envelope. If I post the envelope, if I post the card, I'm going to post the envelope. I post the envelope. What happens to the card? The card's posted as well. Put Lloyd's address on it. Gets to the other end. Posty comes along. Throws it into the mailbox. Lloyd, Lloyd gets the card. And he gets the card because the card is in the envelope. So what I do to the, the envelope any, happens to anything that's in the card. We're in Christ. So we're in Christ, sharing in his perfect obedience. We're in Christ with our, our own sins fully paid for on the cross. We're in Christ being raised from the dead to claim the full, perfect resurrection body that comes a new life, indestructible new life that comes from perfect obedience. We're in it. If, if Jesus is in the envelope, we're the card, we're in Christ. Wherever he goes, we go. So, so, of course, that means the second amazing thing is it matters because we're fully justified. You can see that, that Paul wrote it about in Romans. He said, he was given over to death for our sins, but raised to life and raised to life for our justification, just as if we'd done and will do everything right. What salvation. Now, we're not going to have time to do eight more of these. <laughs> but um, just to give you uh, a bit of a sense of the other things. Another thing that came with that is this. We're not only dead to sin, like when Jesus died on the cross, we're alive to God. Without the resurrection, the gospel message would be a message of forgiveness, but no ability really to relate to God. It, forgiveness might be a legal and technical fact, but it never breaks through into our experience. But we can know him as the living way to the Father because he is risen. So we're dead to sin and alive to God. That's what the resurrection means. It also means this. Death has been defeated and it will be destroyed. Hebrews talks about Jesus' death might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Free all those who are held in slavery by their fear of death. But it's like when, it, almost like when, when Jesus died on the cross, it was a bit like he was on, out on the canvas to the count of three. But when he was raised from the dead, it was like he, he was back up off the, off the floor of the ring and delivered the knockout punch to death, showing that it's completely defeated. And death is like out for the count. 
now. And when the bell rings, it gets thrown out of the ring for good. Fifthly, it shows the coming kingdom as unstoppable. Isaiah 9 7 says, of the increase of this government, there will be no end. Yeah, what would happen when the unstoppable force of the kingdom met the immovable object of death? Well, now we know. Death was not an immovable object, as it turned out. There was an indescribable bang, and it was the kingdom that prevailed. So the resurrection is the bridge between the past work of Jesus and the present and future work of Christ. All the things he's doing now, all the things he will be done. Um, what about the next one? Um, I like this. This is this is um, uh, a state race in Missouri. So the Republicans conceded they hadn't. Uh, they basically that 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 the opponent to Senator John Ashcroft was in fact a guy who had previously been killed in a crash, but his name was already on the ballot. And actually, they decided the people of uh, of Missouri decided, you know what? We think we like the dead guy better than the other guy. So he got 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 elected. Now now that has happened five times actually in uh, in which is not very often. You got to say of all the people that get elected in the in the states to all the different offices, it's happened five times, something like that. Um, but but you know the the point is this. Um, you know uh, Julius Caesar was alive. He's dead. Um, Attila the Hun was alive. He's dead. You know. Um, Martin Luther King was alive, he's dead. Many other leader, inspirational figures, John F. Kennedy was alive, now he's dead. Um, amazing figures, very powerful figures, but Jesus was dead and he is alive now forevermore. So I think having the, a good qualification for somebody running the place is that they have a pulse for me. That's a good thing. So it wouldn't be great if we'd entrusted the rulership of the universe to someone who was dead. Because, you know, great to, good for a laugh to have a vote for them. But actually, they're not going to be that great at governing, are they? So, another thing. So, it enables the lordship of Jesus. It's also the basis for a new priesthood. Um, this Hebrews talks about this. It says, Jesus has become priest not on the basis of ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. And so, that means... Of course, he was on the cross. He was a sacrifice for our sins. But as a living priest, he mediates and advocates for us. And the new supersedes the old because it's better. It's better than mortal priests. It's not just a priest who's going to be a priest for a while and then get old and die. And then his, his son takes over, what have you. He fulfills the law. Jesus fulfills the law. He, he fills it full. It takes it further than was ever possible. He's a new priest. Crucially this... It promises our bodily resurrection. Now, Jesus' death happened on the day before Passover at 3 p.m., the exact same time that Passover lambs were to be sacrificed. So God was saying something about what was happening by when it happened. But that was also true of the resurrection, you know. Jesus was raised the, and and. They went to the tomb the day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week. Now that day after the Sabbath in the Jewish calendar, that was an important time for offerings actually. The offering was the harvest was coming and you'd take a sheaf from the barley harvest and you'd go to the, the, the temple and you'd go, hey Lord, look, look. And you'd wave this sheaf as an offering to God. And God would accept the offering 
And in accepting that offering, he was accepting the offering of the whole of the harvest that was coming. And um, it's a bit like um, quality control. You know, it's kind of like you got this whole batch of stuff that you've made where you, you take a sample, you test it, and someone says, yeah, passes the test, thumbs up. That batch is good. The whole batch is good. How do you know? I tested the sample. God, in raising Jesus, was saying, this whole batch is going to be good. So um, this resurrected body is unique in history, but it's the first fruits of something more. 1 Corinthians 15 says, now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. The next thing that happens in the Hebrew calendar five weeks later is the festival of weeks, the full wheat harvest we call Pentecost. Interesting, isn't it? Reminds me of uh, in the book of, uh, if you read the line, the book in the wardrobe, which in the wardrobe, there's a bit in there after, after uh, I think it's after Aslan has been, has been slain and uh, they, they, they don't know what's going on. They're very sad. And then, and then the children are in the, in, you know, going, I think it might, it might even be Edmund, one of the children right there. Um, he's, he's walking around and, and, and I think he's going, going back and he's a bit despondent, but um, Narnia has been this place where, they said, you know, it's it's always winter, but it's never Christmas, which was a which was a great website because actually the 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 wicked witch's spell had done it, had 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 held the world for a hundred hundred years, and as he walks along, he sees like snowdrops, and he starts to see um, uh, snow. Uh, starts to see uh, just drips of water because the snow is melting, and it's like. The old evil spell that had held the world for a hundred years is fading away. The time of the deeper magic of Aslan is here. And that's what the resurrection was as well. It was a, new, a totally new thing that meant the old order is passing away. Paul said in Romans, I don't consider our present sufferings worth comparing with the glory that would be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Or as J.B. Phillips puts it, the whole of creation is waiting on tiptoe to see it, to see the sight. We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only that, that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. None of this compartments a new resurrection physical body. For in this hope we were saved. Nearly there. It heralds creation's liberation. You know, Paul said the whole of creation is in bondage to decay. And, and years later, scientists will confirm that. The second law of thermodynamics, the state of entropy in the entire universe as an isolated system will always increase over time. So a system will become more disordered as time increases. The fixed amount of energy in the universe is becoming less and less usable. But, Romans 8, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the gl- and glory of the children of God. Now, this is a massive topic. We haven't really got time for it. But the thing is, Jesus was raised that first day. The day after Sabbath was the first working day of the week. And that was so significant. You know, God rested on the seventh day. He did all that creating. He started with the heavens and the earth. And then the pinnacle of it was he created man and woman. 
And then he, re- he said it was all good. He rested. And thereafter, that creation had been flourishing and filling the earth and sinning and all those things happening. But the very next thing that God did in creation terms was on the eighth day. That's why the church called it the eighth day. It's like the start of the second week. And in the second week, God starts with a man. He starts with Jesus. And then he moves on to men and women. And then he finishes with a new heavens and a new earth. The order is reversed out of his love for us. So the church called it the second, uh, the eighth day. Um, Interestingly, Andrew Wilson said this, when the Rwandan genocide was happening, Western countries got really preoccupied with airlifting out their citizens. And actually, it was a complete disaster what happened. Because what was needed was a heavyweight rescue operation to make peace, to sort out the infrastructure and to renew the country. God isn't like those Western governments. He's not airlifting Christians out of this world. But he's into a heavyweight rescue operation where he transforms the world through them. When Jesus was raised, this operation started. Everything is in scope. Everything. Behold, I make all things new. Jesus has fired the starting gun on the transformation of the heavens and the earth as resurrection life breaks into today. So it's a pretty big thing. And finally... It infuses the here and now with ultimate meaning. You know, the despair and the nihilism you read in Ecclesiastes, it doesn't come from atheism. The philosopher in there believes God exists and is active in the world, but the whole premise of the book is under the sun. It's what, what if this world is all there is? What if there is no resurrection from the dead? By contrast, Paul talks about, I'll tell you a mystery. We're not going, we're going to be asleep. We're going to be changed. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality, the saying will become true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where's your victory, death? Where's your sting? The sting of death, sin, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The writer to Ecclesiastes said, oh, toil is burdensome and it's meaningless. What's the point? Actually, because of the resurrection, Paul can say, always give yourself fully to the labor, uh, to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Everything we do, it's not like, you know, things that we do just in this life for this life can be like, you know, we build it all up and it's like sandcastles on the beach and the way the tide comes in and it seems so solid and then it's gone. You know, but working to bring the kingdom, the flavor of eternity to the world, a foretaste of what is ahead. It has a link to this eternal purpose. So, bit of a whistle-stop tour. But here's the thing, let's finish with this. Just as he said he would, three times he predicted his death and each time he said he'd rise on the third day. Whether you believe that happened or not is the fundamental decision you're going to have to make that will alter the course of your life forever. It's the fulcrum, the pivot on which world history rests. And all these implications of Jesus being alive forevermore means that, of course, we're going to hold on to this truth like a firmly embedded nail. Like Paul said, we're going to pass it on as of first importance. Peter Lewis uh, in The Glory of Christ said this, if for a saviour we have only a ghost, 
then for heaven we'll have only a dream. The future is eternal, it is physical, and it is certain. Jesus has gone ahead of us. He is the way. Death is a temporary inconvenience, a flickering remnant of an old order that is passing away. Hope springs eternal. Let's stand up and let's just worship together to finish today.